Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio's 101 show, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Today's show is on the secret of tribal secret societies with archaeologist and professor Dr. Brian Hayden. It's a bright, sunny day here on Cortez Island, the home of CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio. And I'd like to invite all of you listening from wherever you are listening to take a moment to thank the land that you call home and to remember those that have cared for it before you and for those that continue to care for it now. The Cortez Community Radio Station is on the unceded territorial lands of the Klahus, Slyaman, and Hamalco peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. We have a fascinating show today, and one that has been kind of a unique Folk U mini-course, as Dr. Brian Hayden, professor and archaeologist and author, has come in now, this is his third time, uh, to give us sort of a primer on archaeology, or I'm, I'm, I'm calling it an archaeological primer. Um, and as well, so we've already heard about what archaeology is, um, uh, and then a whole show on a little bit more on the archaeological history of the BC West Coast. And now today, we're going to go to a deeper and more mysterious place. So welcome to the studio, Brian. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be back. Yeah. Although I'd actually like to be out in the garden today, but that's, <laughs> I was hoping for rain, but uh, sun is good no matter what. I, I, I know. I, the only advantage is that uh, at least we only have to suffer and everybody else can just turn the radio up a little louder. No and, matter where they are. No matter where they are. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, so we are just baking into our little, uh, our little hovel of, of a studio. Uh, so you can learn and dig. So I want to start this. This uh, you mentioned secret societies just briefly in one of our earlier uh, conversations, and I got so excited um, because where else in the world do we get to live to have the expert to have an author on this very subject who can come in and educate us all? So I feel really, really grateful and, and lucky. Um, and I thought maybe you could start about. Why why secret societies? Why this was of interest to you and why it might be important or of interest to other people? Right. Well, I should I should start by saying, you know, this is what I would consider a part of social archaeology, you know, we in terms of trying to get back into the past and figure out what the society and and the politics and the ritual life was like back then. So that's a whole branch of archaeology. Um, <clears throat> that uh, became popular about 50 or 60 years ago and still needs a lot more exploration and things like that. 
But I got interested in this topic um, sort of by accident. Uh, <laughs> I um, uh, There was a student that I had who wanted to do a... Uh, a uh, directed study with me, and and I said, well, if you do it on something I I'm interested in, we can go for it. And so she said, okay, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've always been interested in, you know, these handprints in the painted caves in France that are of children. They're footprints and handprints, and uh, you know, everybody assumes that the painted caves are used for rituals. And so I said. Um, yeah, well, you know, if they're being used for rituals, what are kids doing there? And so I said, why don't you check out the ethnographies that we have and uh, and see what kinds of uh, rituals children were involved in in different societies, and especially the complex hunting and gathering societies, which we think were present and made painted caves. And so she did that, and um, and she came back uh, after a semester, <clears throat> and well, consultations back and forth during the semester. But uh, the conclusion that she came up with, this was Deanne Owens, uh, who works on Vancouver Island now, um, and she said uh, secret societies. That's what kids were involved in, and I said secret society. I didn't know anything about them at that point. And I realized that nobody else did either in archaeology. I mean, it's just sort of terra, terra incognita as far as archaeologists go. Um, and that twigged on my interest into it. And so I started looking deeper and deeper into it. And it became more and more fascinating. And I realized that this is an aspect that's been completely overlooked in uh, social, what we call social archaeology. And, and so I thought, well, we've got to find out some more about it. And so, uh, you know, taking her insights, I started um, looking more and more into secret societies that were recorded ethnographically and, and found that they were absolutely fascinating. They're, um, they're different from modern secret societies that people are usually familiar with, you know, the occult secret societies and and uh, the Masons and uh, things like that, which are, you know, they're related, but they're, they're different from the tribal secret societies as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I found out uh, initially is that these were big events in traditional tribal secret uh, tribal societies and also in some chiefdom societies, and they were very common and they're not universal, um, but they're pretty common. You know, I would guess, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or more percent of, tri you know, traditional tribal societies had these secret organizations, secret ritual organizations. And, uh, and that these were really the center of some of the big events, some of the biggest events in these societies. Um, and I would I would think that they were the biggest events in most uh, traditional secret uh, tribal societies, um, <clears throat> uh, and so you know they uh, these societies would put on displays, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, but these displays were uh, they were just phenomenal things for the time. Uh, they were open to the public, you know. It, 
uh, we'll talk about the secret as well, but the secret was not that these societies existed and it was not who was involved because they'd put on these displays and they'd have, you know, supernatural duels and they'd have uh, displays of uh, all sorts of magic tricks that were, they said were proof of supernatural powers. And like magicians today, you know, magicians today, they try to tell you that they have these supernatural powers and that they, they can read your mind and all these other things. And, um, and, uh, and so there's always that undercurrent in magical performances today. But back then, it was definitely, you know, the emphasis was on demonstrating supernatural powers through magical tricks um, and convincing people that they had supernatural powers um, and, um, and so they were real high points. They were real, um, festive displays and, uh, part of the culture, uh, and a lot of the cultural elaborations, a lot of the cultural mythology, a lot of the cultural art in these societies was all coming out of these secret societies. Uh, and we'll talk about that some more as well. Um, so what? When I think of secret societies, I think that at the very least, the members would be secret or the fact that they exist would be secret. And it seems like neither of those things were actually secret. So what was secret about secret societies? You're exactly right. Uh, that, you know, the uh, there were secret aspects to these societies, but it was not who belonged to them or uh, that they exist or anything like that. The secret was uh, that they had secret knowledge that uh, you had to join in order to get access to. And usually the secret knowledge had to do with supernatural powers and secret knowledge as to how to control them, uh, contact them, control them, and, uh, and use them in many cases, in most cases. <laughs> um, but there were also secrets about the performances, about the displays. Uh, there were all sorts of secrets. And these were uh, arranged in a hierarchical fashion within the society so that when you just joined, when you were initiated, uh, you were given some of the secrets, some of the lower level secrets. And then as you progressed up in the ranks, that you got access to more and more of the p more powerful secrets. And so that those are the secrets of how to control the universe, basically, at, at the top. And, um, yeah, in, in some respects, some of the uh, occult societies of the 19th century and maybe even today sort of had the same same sort of rationale sometimes in their rankings and memberships. But, um, but it was... It was different as well. So, um, but uh, I was going to say that uh, during these displays, during the big ritual events, um, you had all these performances, which were uh, sometimes mind-boggling. And but there were also feasts that were happening all the time. The biggest feasts of uh, a family's lifetime. Uh, might be the initiation of one of their children or one of the members of the family into these societies. Um, and there you have people coming from outside, from other communities. They were huge, big events, you know, much bigger than fairs or, and much more serious, too, because of all the consequences of belonging to these societies. 
so the um, so there are a lot of a lot of uh, I guess you would call them positive aspects in terms of the art and the festivities and uh, the performances. Um, but there's a dark side to secret societies as well. Uh, and I, w I might say that a lot of the cultural identity is wrapped up, you know, the family identity uh, and the group identity, this cultural identity is wrapped up with these secret society activities, uh, especially for the elites, um, because these societies were above above all an elite kind of uh, organization, um, at least the main ones. Um, and, uh, and you had to be quite wealthy to join them as well. So that, um, yeah, the, a lot of the performances were all done for the benefit of increasing the power of these individuals. And I think uh, these organizations are hard to understand if you don't think that they were uh, for something other than getting power and increasing people's wealth. So, um, and they pulled out all the stops to make sure they got that, those kinds of uh, goals. So when trying to understand what secret tribal societies um, were, it sounds like there is a little bit of uh, dichotomy at play. Um, like, were they, is it, uh, I would often think of secret societies these days as about being about uh, access to secret power or to, um, you know, higher up. But there is also this other aspect that maybe you're suggesting that is about a power over um, or hierarchy or control. Um, and so is there some... Is there variation in that, or are we, or are you seeing that most secret societies are also about controlling, having power and control over others in the community? Uh, well, I'd say the main secret societies are about that. You get uh, there's some variation, um, and and they all, um, yeah. There's some because these these groups became so powerful and could be so dominant. Um, a lot of times. People that were disadvantaged um, were targeted, and for whatever reason, uh, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But sometimes they organize themselves into their own little secret societies to try to uh, protect each other against being exploited, or um, even worse, by some of these more powerful groups. So, uh, so there is a little bit of a range, but the main ones were definitely all involved in that. Um, I just want to, uh, we'll come back to this as well a little bit later on, but um, since these societies do occur, uh, the secret societies do occur in most or many tribal societies and even many chiefdom societies, uh, we can expect them to have existed uh, in the past as well, among many of the prehistoric societies that we're looking at. And the question is, well, how do you recognize them and what effects did they have on the rest of society and on the development of cultures over time? So um, I think uh, some of the um, most impressive 
ritual structures that we get uh, archaeologically may be attributed to secret societies. And, uh, but I think one of the more interesting questions in archaeology is revolves around the first occurrence of specialized buildings, right in the Neolithic, uh, beginning in the Neolithic, and extending on up. So the, in the beginning of the Neolithic, we get very small structures that are called ritual structures or shrines or communal buildings and things like that. And uh, and then they keep on increasing in size until they get in, become the ziggurats of the Sumerians or Stonehenge in uh, Britain, uh, Gobekli Tepe, which uh, one of a couple of your listeners I think last time were very interested in, uh, but a prime example, uh, Chavin de Huantar in uh, Peru, uh, an early ritual center again. Um, and you can even go into the pyramids of Egypt, etc. And and the underlying question that archaeologists have always wondered about is why ritual became so important at such early dates. You know, the first specialized bigger buildings were ritual buildings, and why they continue to be so important over time, um, rather than say military buildings or commercial buildings, or political buildings, or palaces. No, that's not what comes out first. What comes out first are these ritual buildings, and that's by far what most of the energy and effort goes into into making. And the question has always been, why? And what I would like to suggest, or what I have suggested, I guess, in, in this uh, book I put out, is that uh, secret societies really provide a missing link because they combine ritual and power and politics as well as economics, uh, all in the same kind of organization. And, and it's institutionalized. I mean, what I would argue is that this is really the first kind of institutionalized religion uh, that appears prehistorically. Before this, we may get uh, ancestor worship or shamans, um, but that's always very contingent upon the people involved. And this is these, organ, these secret society organizations are not contingent upon individuals because it's entire uh, corporate groups or families that are participating in them or members in them. And the organization has a life that continues on even after individuals die. And so it's it's an organization, an organized religion, really, for the first time. And I think it sets the uh, basis for all the subsequent developments in religion that have occurred since, organized religion. I mean... And it seems like part of what you're suggesting, and I remember this from some of our previous uh, conversations, is that to some extent maybe we have to... Uh, unthink some of the things that we think about religion, right? Like that there ought to be or should be or is some sort of separation between church and state, for instance, because in this case, it seems like these societies are are everything. I mean, they they I think you describe them as part magic show, part uh, politics and um, or government and part uh, part church. And so is that what you are indeed saying? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And uh you know, there's a common belief. I keep on running into this uh, from people that uh, are not 
totally familiar with the realities of medieval life, but they, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't postulate some sort of power organization behind building these edifices, these temples, the ziggurats, the pyramids, the Stonehenges, then um, how do you explain their existence? And the standard ex- explanation is always oh, the power of belief. You know, people were believed in these things uh, so fervently in the past that they, uh, they, you know, devoted all their time and energy basically to putting these things up, just like the cathedrals of Europe. Well, I'm sorry, the cathedrals of Europe were not built by faith alone. You know, uh, they they were they had to be financed and the. Uh, and the bishops and the archbishops were constantly going into the parishes to raise money to to finance these things and hitting up the lords and ladies as well. And, uh, you know, some of these things, they just ran out of money after a while and they never got finished. You know, so are these like the cathedral at Reims in France. Uh, did that get, stop getting built because people lost their faith? No, it's because they ran out of money. You know, so um, it's the same thing with Stonehenge. You know, you need to pay people to transport these huge slabs of stone, and you do that with uh, cattle. You know, you give people huge feasts for hauling stones, just like they do still today in Indonesia, in uh, an area where I've worked in Sumba um, and in the Tarajan Highlands. That's how they put up megaliths, is they sacrifice a bull and have a huge feast where people can eat as much meat as they want and drink as much uh, you know, alcohol as they want. And that's how you get people to transport these huge blocks of stone. It's not by faith, you know. It's the work party of <laughs> previous times. Yeah, work party. Literally a party. <laughs> yes. So um, when we're talking about uh, Stonehenge, um, Gobekli, am I saying it right? Gobekli Tepe? I was going to, yeah. I was going yeah. <laughs> I have to write it down so I can get it right. How, we're talking about 15,000 years ago? How long ago? Uh, Gobekli goes back uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago. Um, but uh, I think uh, perhaps the first, um, the first, situation where we can make an argument, or at least where I've made an argument, that uh, secret societies were operating is in the painted caves in, in France, the upper Paleolithic caves that go back, you know, 15, 20, 30,000 years ago. So, um, and, that's, and that's where you started, right, with the, that, finger, the children's fingerprints. That's right, yeah. Um, but is some of that extrapolating backwards then? Um, because I, I, it never really occurred to me until this moment, but you don't just get um, a Gobekli or Stonehenge out of nowhere, right? You need thousands of years of organizing practice um, before you can have a party that big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, you have to start small and build up, you know, <laughs> that goes without saying. And um you know, the work that I've been, uh, excavations I've been doing at Keatley Creek and near Lillooet, I think is are interesting precisely because of that, because we think that we've got, uh, or at least I'm convinced, that we've got secret society lodges there that are relatively small and unremarkable, 
um, in terms of massive building or anything like that. And I think that's basically the start, the uh, starting point. And we know that there were secret societies ethnographically in the area, as well as down here on the coast. As a matter of fact, this area <clears throat> in the Northwest is one of the most interesting areas in the world to study secret societies uh, in terms of the historical and ethnographic records that we have about them. Well, do tell us more. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, uh, well, the, the, the structures that we have at Keeley Creek are, on the surface, they look a lot like just house structures. But when you start excavating, they, uh, there are quite a few differences in terms of special kinds of hearths and uh, special kinds of animals represented and uh, other indications that there were special activities, special types of stone tools. First evidence of a button, uh, of a um, button blanket came from one of these structures. Uh, the, only in, the only one that's been recovered archaeologically that I know of, certainly, in anywhere in the Northwest, um, and dog sacrifices and things like that, which were also a feature of some of these secret societies. I, I should mention that they're often called dancing dance societies, uh, and in the southwest of the United States, uh, they're referred to as, um, you know, uh, uh, Kachina societies or things like that. Um, so that there are a number of different names referring to these. And I should also mention, before we go down too far down the road, uh, just a basic definition of secret societies. So um, these are basically secret uh, or exclusive organizations uh, that are voluntary. So not everybody belongs or not everybody makes it to their top ranks, certainly. Um, and they're internally ranked. And they all claim to have a secret, to uh, have secret knowledge that usually has some sort of power consequences for lives of other people, whether it's healing or making sure the unit, making sure the sun comes up or whatever it happens to be. Um, and typically, the uh, initiation fees are quite uh, high, and so. Uh, I remember one story on the northwest coast here uh, in the Kwakwakuwak area, Franz Boas recorded, um, the amount of wealth that was put on the beach for the initiation of one of the, the family members into the secret society. And this was all wealth to be given to the secret society. And they marked out a, a part of the beach, I think it was 100 feet on a side, and just filled with all sorts of goods. Uh, so that gives you a little bit of an idea as to, you know, the kind of wealth that could be involved in some of these things. Uh, but typically all over the world, you know, there's large amounts of wealth involved in um, becoming a member. And I should add that when people do this in the expectation of getting even more wealth because of their membership, uh, you become a member of the secret society and, you know, all these things that get uh, given to the society by new members gets distributed according to rank and things like that. And in addition to that, uh, 
these societies put levies on families to contribute for their feasts, for their rituals. Uh, so they're drawing on the on the wealth, on the surpluses that the families are producing in these communities, um, big time. And um, can can you tell us a little bit about how that's different than initiation? How, um, uh, yeah, how it would, like, being initiated into a secret society, how is it different than being initiated into uh, some other, tri- like, tribal community or... Right. <clears throat> Yeah, that's a good question. The um, tribal initiations are basically for everyone. And there's usually not an exorbitant amount uh, that's required to go through a tribal initiation. A lot of times there's no cost at all. I mean, you have to go through the procedure and sometimes there's a little hazing and things like that. But a lot of times it's just instruction and things like that. And it and uh, basically that confers rights to marriage and to have children and to be recognized as a member of, of the society. So it's pretty universal. Uh, whereas the secret society initiations, they're all volunteer, voluntary. And, uh, and it doesn't give you any standard rights uh, that are expected of everybody in the community, but it gives you special rights, special privileges, uh, and special claims. Um, so they're quite distinct. And you say they're voluntary, but is there the assumption that they're exclusive to just particular, like just males or just uh, firstborn, or um, or do we know? Um, well, uh, typically one of the interesting things about these societies that I uh, should mention is that um, I think that the uh, one of the underlying uh, goals of creating these societies to begin with uh, was to supersede or transcend uh, the power that uh, was just uh, inherent in kinship organizations. So in kinship organizations, like on the coast here, each house was basically an extended family. Um, and the authority in those houses was limited to the house, was limited to the extended family, or if you were at the top of a lineage, uh, you know, your position in the lineage being at the top gave you some sort of influence or power, if you like, on the other members of the lineage, but you couldn't extend that to any other lineage or any other people in the community that had different lineages. And so... The logic behind this, the membership of this, is to try to include people from different families in the organization. So it enables you to extend the power that you're exerting uh, over many families and even many, many communities in some cases. Um, and so uh, one way of ensuring that this takes place is to make certain um, certain roles in the society, certain membership uh, places in the society reserved for certain families. And the family would could send somebody to be initiated from them, uh, and each family did that so that you had a mix of the families and you really spread out your power base, uh, assuming that these were important people in the families themselves, which they always were. Um, and one of the ways, one of the ideological um, developments that you get 
in order to ensure that this takes place is you develop these, um, these stories about uh, supernatural power that was acquired by an ancestor through uh, either the, the ancestor was a supernatural spirit on his own that came to earth and, uh, and uh, had a child with a human uh, partner, or uh, they encountered some supernatural being that gave that ancestor this power, and then the ancestor passed it down to his offspring uh, if they were interested in acquiring the power and if they had the means to do it. And if they uh, acquired the ritual paraphernalia, went through the training, um, forked over all the wealth, then they could uh, take the power from the ancestor and exercise it themselves. Uh, so that um, so that this was, um, I forgot where we were going with this. <laughs> I, 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 I'm following you uh, where exactly where you're going. And all of a sudden I was thinking, this is the foundation of every culture's myths that we've ever heard, right? I mean, they're all basically some supernatural godlike being who, you know. Well, uh, yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in many cases, but uh, certainly in these elite families, yes, even in, uh, you know, medieval France, you know, the elite families uh, were derived from uh, one of their ancestors running into a mermaid, for instance, and uh, marrying the mermaid and having offspring, which were half supernatural and half uh, human. And then all of their descendants uh, acquired these supernatural qualities and, and abilities that enabled them to rule uh, over their, their area. So, uh, yeah, it's very common. So it's, it's a way, this was back to sort of how they were different than uh, regular initiations and the kind of uh, what I hear you saying is that they were a way of, and once again, kind of back to a government model of of a community existing or figuring out hierarchy or ways to um, exert power, influence over the different families, uh, members um, within that community, which makes me wonder, then did that happen or do we have evidence or ideas that that happened on a, a larger scale that communities who maybe rarely or never um, uh had interactions with each other would be further organized within some secret, secret, you know, society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> there's, um, oh, before we get into that, I just wanted to add, tag on to the, uh, this idea of family descent and power coming down. That's why these totem poles are so important. That's why the family crests are so important, uh, because they are warrants for acquiring the supernatural power in these secret and, and joining these secret societies and exercising even more power. Um, and in, uh, and so this, if you've got members within the community that are part of a local secret society, you've also got uh, secret societies that are part of the same organization in other communities. For, so, for instance, the Hamatsa Society, um, which is uh, one of the uh, local ones. It's uh, 
translated as the Cannibal Society, but they had members in communities all over the up and down the coast here. And when they had big rituals, they would come from all over and uh, and congregate for some of the big rituals, or at least the leading members of these societies would travel for these big events. Um, and uh, they would interfere with each other too. And there's a story in, in Bella Kula of a, um, of a local society in one community that uh, messed up in one of their rituals and they let it let some of their secrets uh, show in the displays that they were putting on. And so the members of another community that belonged to the same sacred society came down and beat up on these guys for, for screwing up. Um, and so, yeah, you get... Um, uh, and in Africa, you know, there are regional centers for uh, secret societies that uh, the leaders... Uh, basically have strong influence over huge areas, um, you know, the size of some of the states. or They, they cross state boundaries and uh, even include some different ethnic groups sometimes and different linguistic groups. So it becomes very powerful for organizing large parts of the um, geography. And w- within one community, then, would... would there be competing or multiple secret societies or just one that you may or may not belong to? Uh, that's another distinctive feature is that a lot of times there's uh, there are competing secret societies. Yeah, in Bella Coola, there was three of them. Um, and so fairly often there is. And uh, in Africa, you know, you could get a number of different ones in the same community. <clears throat> and this is uh, a lot of times, you know, I have to say that the, the dominant paradigm for explaining the development of these ritual organization or ritual structures archaeologically at the uh, early periods is that this was for social solidarity. It was to bring the communities together to reduce, you know, stresses and conflicts um, and what I've concluded from looking at these secret societies is ethnographically is that's entirely bogus. These secret societies created more conflict and created more divisions. They divided the world into the poor and the worthless versus the elite and the powerful and supernaturally endowed. Uh, and uh, they were constantly competing with each other for members and for wealth and for power. Um, and this is uh, the anathema of creating social solidarity. Um, it's true that, you know, the people that joined the secret society, they became very solid socially within the society, but uh, that was only a, a small self-interested group. Um, and it did not certainly include everybody in the community, uh, be- as you would expect of some organization that was uh, that was uh, created in order to increase social solidarity and community uh, support and things like that. So there's you get into these theoretical issues, but they're pretty important, I think. And so did would you find then that in geographically in places that are quite abundant, um, at, like the West Coast, full of of so much uh, plant. Um, 
animal food and beauty and just abundant with riches, that these secret societies would also then be more abundant or would they be somehow less necessary and therefore less prevalent? That's a, that's a fabulous observation. Um, and in fact, when you look at the, uh, the occurrence of these societies and their proliferation, they all occur in the richest areas that are producing, that are most productive of food. Uh, this is explicitly stated in California, where they also occur. Uh, they say, you know, when you get, these are all based on the production of surplus surplus food, surplus wealth. And so in, in areas where there's um, much less surplus possible to produce, you don't get these societies. It's only in the rich societies where you get them. And um, can we also place this in a little bit? Because I remember uh, in our previous conversation talking a little bit about um, that abundance being part of what uh, changed the hierarchical structure of tribal societies. Um, and But now I, we're also seeing that there's some elements, it looks like, to secret societies 30,000 years ago. Um, or am I, am I, you know, in the pave, cave painting days, like so way back to um, Ice Age time, or do we call that? I say old stone yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. Um, All the uh, same. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so th- this is really interesting to me because it looks like that actually the seeds of this are are way earlier than you know I I would have thought, and probably a lot of people are thinking. Can you talk a little bit about about the idea of them sort of slowly growing and where they would have grown from? Yeah, well, it's a uh, it's a controversial idea for sure, <laughs> and and I've had a lot of flack from some people, <laughs> but but I'm convinced that uh, these ice age uh, societies that were producing the art and going deep into the caves, uh, and yeah, well, we should talk about the initiation into these secret societies is involving um, sacred ecstatic experiences uh, as well. Uh, try to remember to get back to that but um basically uh these caves are great for inducing uh altered states and for carrying out ceremonies in secret as well and for revealing secrets uh that are mysterious and supernatural um but the the argument that i've tried to make in the past was that uh these societies uh, did produce surpluses and that they are were extremely wealthy. And the key to that, I think, was the development of storage technology, which you don't get before the Upper Paleolithic. And, um, and what we get is, uh, from what we've been able to determine from population levels, is a um, geometric increase in the population levels in the Upper Paleolithic in Europe. Um, from the Middle Paleolithic to the Upper Paleolithic, there's a huge jump in the population. And uh, this could not have occurred if there were really scarce resources. And all of the uh, indications from that time period that we get were that they were uh, they were butchering large numbers of animals and filleting their, their uh, meat uh, 
for preservation, drying and preservation. They were taking in salmon, just as they're doing on the northwest coast here. Uh, that uh, they were producing lots of art that had to be subsidized in one way or another. They were involved involved in exchanges to get, procure raw materials from hundreds of kilometers away. They were using dentalium shells for decoration, which was money here on the coast, uh, ethnographically. Um, there are lots of indications uh, that these were rich, surplus-producing societies uh, in the time when the painted ca- when the caves were being painted. So I think it all fits. Um, it's a matter of convincing everybody that that was uh, that was all the case. But at any rate, uh, so I think uh, yeah, with the end of the ice ages, uh, the big tundras that supported the large animal biomass, they disappeared and they became boreal forests. So the animal biomass just dropped uh, out of the picture. And it wasn't until uh, after 10,000 years ago that people developed fishing technology really well and they could start producing surplus fish and things like that, as well as storage technology. So you, you start seeing these things crop up here and there where people could produce surpluses, including Gobekli Tepe. Uh, that's one of the one of the places where we start getting these kinds of things. And um, But a, a number of other places in the Near East, too, the Natufians, uh, which uh, immediately preceded domestication. Again, big, dense populations, and I think good evidence for secret societies there as well. Um, and a couple of other of these Mesolithic, what, what we usually refer to as Mesolithic kinds of societies from about five to 10 or 12,000 years ago. And I remember you saying last time that one of the things that is interesting about uh, Gobekli Tepe, Tepe, um, I'm going to just do my best, um, is, is that it makes use of kind of architectural detail that seems way more advanced than could have been possible in that time. And is that, like, what is the kind of secret society lens to put on that? Um, is that part of the secrets? Is that, you know, how, why? Well, first of all, these are constructions that are fairly small. I mean, maybe twice the size of this room here. Um, and so we're not looking at, you know, com- it's not like churches or cathedrals where you're bringing everybody from the community in. No, these are places that are meant for small numbers of people, uh, an elite, if you like, or, you know, very uh, select group of people. Um, the other thing about these societies is that they uh, begin to amass the the resources to be able to build these kinds of things. Um, You know, in regular hunting and gathering societies, you could never get enough people together to build something like that. Most people wouldn't be interested. You have to pay them in order to quarry and carry or transport these large blocks of stone. I mean, Gobekli's made out of megaliths, basically, uh, a lot of the structures, and they're all carved or a lot of them are carved. And so you need specialists to do the carving, do the quarrying, do the transporting, do the construction. I mean, there are a lot of resources that are required. And no other organization, I would argue, 
uh, could amass those kinds of resources, uh, not individual families, not, uh, you know, individuals. Um, so you need some sort of organization that can acquire the resources to do that. And secret societies provide the means of amassing those resources and the ability to uh, commission the works, uh, the architecture, the carving, and all the rest of it. Um, and moreover, Gobekli Tepe is in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's on a it's on a mountaintop, and it's far from any any regional any local kind of uh, uh, village or residential structure. And so it's obvious that people are going there. Uh, and these buildings are semi-subterranean, just like the kivas in the southwest of the United States. Um, and so they're, you know, they're secret kinds of buildings. They're stuck in the ground where nobody can see in and uh, where you've just got your, your friends there, your other ritualists that you're undertaking these things with. Uh, there's lots of evidence for feasting, also characteristic of all secret societies. Um, so I, and the, the other thing is, um, for instance, uh, we were going to come back to this later, but how, how you recognize secret societies archaeologically. So I've just talked about the location, the types of building, the resources involved, um, and typically as well, secret societies are responsible for a lot of the art, developing the artistic traditions and commissioning the big works of art. Uh, all the masks on the Northwest Coast, those are all used in secret society rituals. Um, and the totem poles, you know, again, linked to this uh, inheritance of supernatural powers and membership in secret societies, um, all that stuff. Um, and in Gobekli, uh, another indication of secret society um, origin of these uh, structures are the depiction of the animals involved. And this is also true in the painted caves in Europe and in basically most of the other secret societies where you can where they have recognizable uh, images of animals. Uh, the iconography is what we call it. Um, but they're all power animals, what I would call power animals. They are not animals being used for uh, everyday subsistence. They're not the main sources of food that are being depicted in the painted caves in Europe or in Gobekli or most of these other uh, locations. What they are uh, in the painted caves are mammoths and bears and and aurochs, you know, with a pretty fierce, uh, you know, uh, bulls that are uh, almost uh, half again as taller than the modern bulls and a lot nastier too. Um, and uh, you get uh, in Gobekli, you get bulls or auroxes, uh, you get. Uh, boars, you get, uh, you know, scorpions, you get all these nasty kinds of uh, animals uh, as, as the dominant uh, features. Uh, they're not exclusive. I mean, there are a few other, there's some birds in there, but a lot of times these are birds of prey, you know, the eagles, another power symbol. Uh, on the northwest coast, we got thunderbirds. We have, you know, and the and same is true of the totem animals. They're not the salmon. 
I mean, every once in a while you see a salmon in the mouth of a bear or something like that. But it's not salmon. It's the power animals. It's the eagles. It's the bears. It's the wolves. It's, you know, things like that um, that are depicted. And, and so my contention, well, this is easy to document ethnographically that this is the pattern, but it makes sense, too, in terms of, you know, the goal being to express power, to, to, to use power. So in order to do that, you want a power animal to represent you. So there are a lot of, lot of interesting uh, ways we can get at, you know, the existence of secret societies by using a lot of these different indicators. And then I promised I would uh, ask you again about the initiations and some of the things that we think were part of the initiation process. Yes. Um, Ecstatic events. Okay. Uh, the initiations, um, they're, um, let me see if I want to get into some of the logic. Well, if we can, if we, we can get into it uh, through the discussion of uh, Hamatsa initiations here on the Northwest Coast. Um, uh, we've already talked about the cost. So that's just one part of it. Um, but one of the things that, uh, and we hopefully will have time to come back to this, is one of the things I want to talk about is the way they transform ideologies within cultures. Uh, because, you know, when there are ideological changes, uh, there needs to be some sort of a, some sort of a, reason or some sort of a motivation or some sort of a, uh, a motor behind these transformations. And a lot of times the secret societies uh, seem to have appropriated existing ideologies or mythologies, if you like. Um, and the case of the Hamatsa is an interesting one because there probably existed, and this is just my speculation, but I think it's fairly reasonable, uh, there probably existed stories of uh, cannibal spirits in the woods uh, long before secret societies came around. I mean, it's, you know, like, uh, in order to make sure your kids don't wandering around, go off wandering in the woods by themselves, you say, oh, you can't go in the woods by yourself, you might get attacked by the cannibal spirits, you know, Sonokwa, you know, the cannibal woman who eats children. Um, and so, you know, you probably got this, this underlying myth of, um, you know, dangerous spirits that you want to really avoid. Uh, and what the, the secret societies appear to have done is take some of these existing myths and sort of expand on them and start claiming that they, uh, first of all, these are real spirits, and second of all, that they're a threat to the entire community, and that if you uh, if you don't um, if you don't employ their services to keep these spirits under control, they can uh, ruin the community and society, and maybe even kill you. Uh, sort of like uh, the traditional version of the. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, you know, Night of the Zombies, you know, invading communities and eating people and just, you know, destroying society. Uh, so um, basically, that's what got 
that that was part of the ideology. And I think a lot of the traditional uh, supernatural concepts uh, revolve around this this idea that uh, there's danger from supernatural gods or spirits or whatever it happens to be, and it's the role of the the king or the chief or the leader of the secret society to keep these forces under control. And so it's very different from the benevolent, you know, uh, Christian kind of view of the world of a benevolent God. No, most of these gods in the past were angry gods, especially in Polynesia and places like that, angry or dangerous at the very least. And so what they would do to initiates for the uh, Hamatsa society would be they'd send them off into the woods on their own and they'd stick them in a, a, a small shelter to stay there for months on end uh, and they would drop off something to eat every once in a while but basically they would start starving these kids and, and telling them that they were going to be possessed by these cannibal spirits uh, and they starved and make sure they, you know, and, and that these cannibal spirits would take over their bodies and that they would be a danger to the community. And to what extent everybody believed that, uh, you know, all the initiates would believe that or not, who knows, but um, some probably did and some probably didn't. Uh, but at any rate, they would uh, be emaciated when they came back and extremely hungry and they would be led back into the community for their initiation into this big gathering, uh, big public display. And the public display would be of, you know, this is, this is your son who's, who's been possessed by a cannibal spirit, and he is a danger to the community. And as part of this, they would go around in a wild, frenzied state and start biting people. And they would actually, uh, the organizers would actually have designated people that had agreed ahead of time to be bitten and have chunks of flesh taken out of their arm or wherever it was. And they, they'd be paid for that. Um, but it was a huge display of what can happen if these cannibal spirits are let loose and are not controlled. And so, um, you know, they and they would literally act crazy. They would just, you know, act as though they were possessed. And all this was uh, manufactured, of course, uh, but very convincing displays. And, uh, and then after this uncontrolled chaos, um, then the people, the leaders of the secret society would step forward with all this, their secret knowledge, and they would go through a ritual and calm down the this initiate and uh, and put a laying on of hands and and finally be able to put a cedar bark ring around his neck, which would calm him completely. And therefore, they would demonstrate their power of controlling this uncontrollable, dangerous uh, spiritual force. Uh, and from that time on, the initiate would be able to control this uh, cannibal spirit within him and... Um, and no longer be a danger to the community. So, um, but there were, there were, uh, and so that's part of the initiation. And then they'd go up to, in the ranks of the society afterwards with subsequent uh, initiations into another rank. Uh, and then there would be a big feast afterwards and there would be other 
demonstrations of supernatural powers and things like that. This is fascinating, but we're going to take a, a short break. Um, it's the top of the hour. I'm going to remind you, you are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. And as we are listening uh, and having this short break, we'll be listening to some music. We'd love to hear from you if you have questions about secret societies uh, and tribal secret societies or other archaeological questions for our amazing uh, Dr. Brian Hayden, please do call in at 250-935-0200. And I look forward to answering those or having him answer those when we are back. I had a dream last night I dreamt that I was swimming And the stars up above Directionless and drifting And somewhere in the dark Were the sirens and the thunder And around me as I swam The drifters who'd gone under Time, love Time, love Time, love Time, love, time, love, time, love It's only a change of time I had a dream last night Rust and far below me Battered holes and broken hardships Leviathan and lonely I was thirsty so I drank And though it was salt water There was something about the way It tasted so familiar Time, love Time, love Time, love Time, love Time, love Time, love love. It's only a change of time
You say that they have passed away That noble race and brave That their light canoes have vanished Off the crested wave That mid the forest where they But the name is on your waters and you may not wash it out. Tis where Ontario's below, like ocean surges curled. Where strong Niagara's thunders wake the echo. On green Virginia's breast You say they're cone-like caverns That clustered on the veil Have fled away like withered leaves Before the autumn's gale But their memory lives on in your hills, their baptism on your shore. Your everlasting rivers speak their dialect of yours. Oh, Massachusetts, where's it? Within her lordly crown and broad Ohio bears it mid all her young renown. Connecticut hath breathed it where a quiet foliage waves and bold Kentucky breathed it was through all her ancient kings. Watch as it hides its lingering voice within its rocky heart and alleghany graves its tone throughout its lofty chart. But not knock on his forehead, hold or seal his sacred trust. Your mountains build their monument Though you destroy their dust You quiver Nos at home Yeah.
Welcome back. You are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM. We have a really interesting show today. Uh, here today, we have Brian Hayden, professor, PhD in archaeology, and author. Uh, and he is actually holding in his hand, or between our hands here on the desk, is uh, his book on secret societies called The Power of Ritual and Prehistory, uh, which came out in 2019. And I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little bit about what it took to convince a publisher that, that you could, like this was a book. <laughs> well, you have to submit a proposal. And if they seem, if they think that it's got some potential, they say, okay, well, you know, uh, and they send it out to people for, you know, to evaluate the proposal and things like that. Uh, so if your peers think that it's worthwhile pursuing, then you get the green light to go ahead. And uh, if they decide they don't like it, then you, after you've written it, then you go try to find another publisher. But this one was pretty convinced that it was going to work out. It was Cambridge University Press. And, um, yeah, I was pretty sure they would have enough appeal to archaeologists to that they would go through with it so and maybe one of the few books on archaeology that lay people would actually be like oh my goodness um this is so fascinating and indeed i got to read a couple chapters in uh, preparation for today and it is so interesting <laughs> and so much more full of kind of vivid detail that a, that a lay person can relate to yeah, well, the introduction is uh, perhaps accessible, more accessible, you know, to or more interesting for lay people. But most of the book is full of a lot of detail, which, you know, most people are not so interested in parts of it, for sure. And it's, and it's organized so that you could, you know, just focus in on the part that you think is most interesting, whether it's the displays or the you know, the way things are financed or the kinds of materials that were being used. You could just focus in on that part 
and uh, ignore the less interesting parts. But at any rate, it's uh, it can be like reading the phone book for some people. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> you know the Cortez Island phone book is actually pretty interesting. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so in your book, you talk about how rare it is to find ethnographic accounts of tribal secret societies because, by nature, they're operated in secret out of the eyes of others, but especially out uh, beyond the eyes of of missionaries or colonizers or national politics or the kind of powers that be that would want to come in mm-hmm. and write them down. But you also have some accounts that you have tracked that have survived. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of those uh, and what they, what they have meant for your work. Yeah, well, these... Um yeah, I think we're incredibly privileged to have some of these accounts and uh, uh, incredibly lucky, too, because, as you say, these were uh, uh, societies that operated on keeping their their um, rituals and all of their organizations secret. Um, and so they're, and I got to say that in most of these societies, if they found out anybody was divulging any of these secrets, the people would be killed. Um, so that it was really serious stuff. And it's not surprising that uh, the, this information was just not being given out uh, to most anthropologists or ethnographers or anybody else that was uh, curious about what was going on and how was this thing operating and organized. Um, and but there is a, a a very narrow window of opportunity, and some of the um, researchers talk about this opportunity um, between the time when uh, these secret societies were very powerful and the time when the society starts disintegrating, and I mean the broader society, because of. Uh, colonial impacts um, because there these there are people out there to actively suppress these societies, uh, colonial people, missionaries, and government officials, because they realize that they this is a source of power, local uh, indigenous power, uh, that could uh, threaten the colonial operation, and so they were actively trying to uh, dismantle any indigenous source of power like that. Um, and they could be regional, as we mentioned before, they could have regional uh, impacts on, and organize things on a regional scale, which was very threatening for any colonial organization. But also the economic changes that were taking place to just undermine the sources of wealth. Um, and uh, so basically... People started, uh, these secret societies started dying out because of all these impacts. And people realized that they were sometimes the last generation that was going to be a member of the society. And they, in this very narrow window when everything was collapsing um, concerning these societies, uh, you have some individuals that were concerned that the traditions be documented, that they be passed on so that future generations would know what was going on, things like that. And so sometimes it's just one generation, and that's all you get, 20 years, maybe 10 years, uh, when these things are happening. 
and there were some people who were in place at the time that uh, were interested in finding out about these societies and able to document them. Uh, there are not very many but uh, in the world, you know, but uh, there are a number of societies. Drucker was one, Boaz was another on the northwest coast here, um, uh, McElwraith up in Bella Coola, uh, very late in the game sometimes, and all, all they get was oral history of, well, this is the way things used to be. But sometimes there were still ongoing uh, activities. And, you know, the potlatch was outlawed uh, for many, many generations. Uh, and that was sort of all tied in with these secret societies as well, certainly with the, with the big feasts that were being given. Uh, so it was all part and parcel of the same thing. And, you know, um, so we're very lucky to have some of these accounts that do survive. And so what do we have some stories from uh, you shared one with us um, about the Hamatsa, the Hamatsa. Yeah. yeah. And do we have other ones that uh, from this area that um, you can share with us? Um, well, there's uh, the ones up in uh Bella Coola that McElwraith uh, recorded, the uh, Kisuit Society, um, and there was one society that was exclusively for chiefs, uh, once again underlining, you know, this relationship between politics and ritual, um, and that is a common theme among many secret societies, whether in California, in Africa, in Melanesia, um, you know, that this relation, this closely relationship between people in power uh, politically and, and wealth, people that have wealth and membership in these secret societies. As a matter of fact, uh, there's one, uh, doc, one account, um, one observation <laughs> from the Plains um, that uh, the secret society there actually created the position of a chief to take care of all the everyday administrative kinds of affairs uh, that involve supernatural spirits and things uh, so that they didn't have to constantly be pestered for curing somebody or for, you know, taking care of some, blessing somebody's house or for, you know, any any of the minor concerns that were keep kept on coming up. So they created this chief and they put him in power and, you know, but they were the ones that were running everything. And that's a constant uh, theme. You know, a lot of times, whether it's in Africa or California, you know, the people say that, oh, yeah, it was all the chiefs that were members or all the most important people in the community. And the, uh, and the leader of the community, the chief, community chief was also a member and he did what everybody else wanted you know so um and what and so you've talked a lot about rituals i mean i almost see it as the glue that holds together these secret societies and feasting seems to come up as one of those important rituals um but also i've heard you mention dancing uh, and I'm wondering how how prevalent dancing was as part of it, and then what other kind of ritualistic activities there there were. Right. Um, well, the uh, I was going to say something about the to uh, do. You got into uh, <laughs> something just passed. Um, 
but uh, the dancing was um, part of, I think, the attempts, the tactics that were used by the organizers of these societies to induce altered states of consciousness. Because this is not dancing in the in the modern sense where you get up and dance to a band and you know you can sit down and rest if you feel like it or choose different partners. No, this is individual dancing that goes on for hours and hours and hours uh, with a constant uh, drone of drumming and singing, uh, which is all geared to inducing altered states of consciousness and uh, to exhaustion sometimes. Uh, because this is energetic dancing, and it just go, continues on and on. And this is all part of, I think, uh, tactics on the part of the organizers to try to induce um, states of consciousness that seem to make connections to supernatural realms. Uh, because you get into states, altered states of consciousness, and you have start having ecstatic experiences that make it seem as though the supernatural is real. And so this is one way of demonstrating that what the organizers are telling you is not just all made up, but that there is a reality to their claims to be able to contact the supernatural and inducing these experiences is one way of convincing um, initiates that that, ex that that power is real uh, and sort of binding people closer to the secret societies. And they use not only dancing, but they, um, in uh, Southern California, they use datura, you know, hallucinogenic substances, but in a lot of other areas, uh, like the Hamatsa starvation. I mean, basically, I think a lot of that was to induce ecstatic experiences or super, uh, altered states of consciousness to make make it seem to the person that he really was uh, possessed. Um, and in Africa, you know, you'd get similar uh, deprivation of sleep. Um, people kept in the dark for long periods of time, people undergoing really strenuous physical um, experiences and psychological experiences. Um, I think a lot of the emphasis on um, shock values uh, like cannibalism, just telling people that, uh, you know, they're going to be eating human flesh uh, or... Sometimes in, in Africa, that seemed to be a really strong uh, tactic that was used. There was you know, fairly well-documented human sacrifice and cannibalism as part of a number of these secret societies in Africa uh, as, an, as, a, as a major feature. And I think just the emotional shock value of being confronted, just seeing that or participating in it, um, must have created... Um, emotional distress and uh, create altered states of experience for a lot of people as well. The Cannibal Society in the Northwest Coast, there's a big debate as to whether there really was actual cannibalism or not. Um, and it's, it's hard to tell. Some people are absolutely convinced that it was real. Uh, other people say, no, it was all just... Uh, 
you know, claims and sort of show. They would show a, a, a dead body and, uh, you know, pretend to eat or put it in their part of the body in their mouth and spit it out afterwards. Or, you know, there's all sorts of arguments on both sides. And who knows what the reality was. But, uh, but it, certainly in other parts of the world, especially in Africa, it was a reality. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, these, these initiations, um, that was another aspect of the initiations, getting into these altered states of consciousness. And I, you know, I have to say something that we'll come back to in a bit, um, that uh, it probably didn't work for everybody. You know, there's lots of different um, proclivities that individuals have for getting into altered states. Some, for some people, it's extremely easy. They could enter into an altered state of consciousness at the drop of a hat. Uh, other people, it's extremely difficult. Uh, and so I don't think this worked for everybody. And you, uh, in all the accounts, there are always skeptics, uh, even among the membership. Some people, some of the members viewed all this stuff as just... Uh, uh, techniques for controlling people and nothing more than a sham uh, and other people I'm sure believed it uh, you know wholeheartedly so uh, there's you know full range of these different attitudes towards the supernatural and towards ritual and religious experience and is there evidence, um, I mean, I understand more now why there's the kind of uh, religious aspect or how we can see that this could evolve into what we now consider to be religion as well as what we consider to be government. But was there evidence that there was also an element of of self-development? Like, was there that uh, a draw to not just have more power or be higher up in, within the hierarchy, but to somehow become a you know a better version of oneself um <clears throat> that's a complex question <laughs> um in some respects um for instance in the menominee um groups around the ojibwe groups around great lakes uh there are these constant exhortations about uh, trying to ward off temptations to um, get too much power or to uh, exploit people or to take advantage of uh, your position for self-aggrandizement. But um, that uh, seems to indicate that there were a lot of people that did that, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's... Um, so there, there's a rhetoric uh, in some of these societies that uh, you've got to do things for the good of other people or for the good of the community. And certainly that's the public rhetoric, that they are only doing things to protect the community and for the good of the community, and therefore the community should support them and give them you know, food and other resources to be able to do their job. <clears throat> but... Inside, I mean, a number of the ethnographers, whether it's in Africa or in the plains or wherever it happens to be, they say the public persona is always generous and beneficial and 
community-oriented, but in private. All these individuals were, were really just interested for their self, advancing their own interests and their self-benefits. Um, and that they were some of the most, um, you know, they, they were not uh, models to, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of uh, um, models to be followed in terms of their personalities. Which seems oh, to get... Oh, I just got, I got a one, one more thing. <laughs> this is the other dimension. I said it's a complex topic. But um, as individual experiences, when you go, you know, for people that did get into these uh, sacred ecstatic experiences, which I call C's, S-E-E-S, S-E-E, they, uh, that is pretty clear that uh, a number of them, uh, uh, certainly some of them, uh, did experience sort of uh, sort of mind uh, mind-boggling transformations, uh, sort of similar to what people sometimes uh, describe uh, as uh, experiences on LSD or other psychedelic, you know, pe- um, peyote or things like that. They say they see the universe in a different way, and mind it's a you know, transformative experience that changed their lives, etc. And uh, and I'm sure that that took place for a number of people. So in these societies, you got a mix of people that you know have seen uh, rele- revelations and had transformative experiences. And in that respect, you know you get personalities evolving and developing. Uh, but on the other hand, you get the total skeptics and the, you know, just um, people that are just out to manipulate for their own benefits. Um, and uh, it's really interesting in uh, the site of Chavin de Huantar in Peru, which is sort of the mother, it's called the mother culture, the Chavin culture, which led to all the other cultures in Peru. Um, but the site of Chavin de Huantar, where there is human sacrifice and cannibalism, very definitely um, on archaeological bases, and I think it's a it's a regional secret society site, one of the more evolved ones. Uh, I think you can make a really good case. Uh, they've got these tunnels that go into the pyramids, these that for kilometers, and these little chambers inside that can only hold a few people. And uh, and the, these remains at the entrances of these tunnels that go in, they're, they're just absolutely remarkable. Um, but the remains that they dumped at the uh, entrances are full of alpaca and yama kinds of animals that were obviously being used for feasting, but they're mixed in with human remains too um, that were obviously, you know, got cut marks on them and everything else. So uh, it's pretty clear that that's what was going on. But anyway, what I was trying to get at is that uh, one of the uh, art motifs is they have these tenons, uh, stone tenons that come out of the sides of the buildings there, or used to. They've fallen down now. And these, the ends of these tenons are sculptured in uh, portraits. And these portraits, there are dozens, scores and scores of these things. And they're absolutely fascinating because they show individuals in states of transformation from, you know, just smiling, really happy people after they've had 
some of the psychedelic cactuses in the area, <laughs> probably. Um, but uh, you get very good portraits of individuals, and then you get tra stages of transformation. They start having snakes in their hair, and they start developing, uh, you know, uh, claws or feline features in their faces. And so it's to me, it's obvious that those were uh, some of the experiences, some of the sacred ecstatic experiences that people were having that were members of the secret society that was using Chavin. Um, and the, then in the feasting refuge outside, we get evidence of uh, paraphernalia used for psychedelic ingestion and uh, psychedelic substance ingestion and things like that. It's a fascinating site, um, but um, for lots of different perspectives, but they all come together. I think they all make sense as a site being used and, and built by secret societies. And what is ancient uh, paraphernalia for? Is like this is like an ancient bong? <laughs> no, no. Was, uh, I mean, for um, for uh, <laughs> for um, making basically cocaine paste, you know, uh, of uh, coca leaves. Uh, so you get these pallets that are used for mixing uh, or for grinding and mixing lime in with the uh, coca leaves, and then also. Uh, smoking apparatus and things like that. Um, and then we've got also uh, depictions of the outside display art uh, of um, people that are transformed into basically jaguar kinds, jaguar heads and feet, but with human bodies, you know, and uh, sometimes carrying these uh, San Pedro cactuses that are hallucinogenic. So it, you know, there's... <laughs> It's like an instruction manual for... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then you talked a little bit about the way that these secret societies were used to transform ideologies within cultures. Uh, so it, can you talk a little bit more about that um, and the relationship between the individual then and the community? Yeah. Well, we mentioned um, before... Oops. We mentioned before the uh, this transformation of the the... Uh, evil spirit in the woods, you know, to frighten children uh, into a much more powerful entity that uh, could threaten adults and the entire community. Um, so, and also we mentioned the uh, the ideology about the uh, the supernatural power coming from this ancestral link to an ancestor that had either. Uh, copulated with a supernatural entity or had offspring with a supernatural entity or that had some sort of interaction that gave them supernatural power that could be passed on to uh, their descendants. So these are all, you know, important parts of uh, religious ideology um, and concepts. Uh, also the idea that certain objects were endowed with uh, great power, great supernatural power, and that were used in these rituals and that uh, had to be procured at high cost from, you know, exotic locations, you know, far off. Some of these, uh, some of the conch shells that were used to, um, at Chabin came from uh, several hundred kilometers away on the coast. Chabin's in the mountains. Uh, and if you play two of these conch shells together, you get this um, sonic interference pattern that 
uh, creates this wah, wah, wah kind of effect in the sound. And that is very disturbing, very disorienting uh, psychologically when you hear it. And they had, you know, like uh, 20 or 30 of these conch shells found all in one place. And Chavin obviously being used to really uh, do a trip on people's minds. Uh, they use these tunnels for that, too, the dark tunnels that I talked about. Uh, it's just, uh, and they use light, the architecture. They use so many different things to try to influence people's uh, state of mind. Uh, it's just, uh, just incredible. Um, and so these power objects, power animals, we mentioned before as well, uh, but also imbuing objects like these conch shells and, and other uh, exotic materials, whether it's jade or whether it's uh, special shells. Uh, uh, cowrie shells are often thought to have special powers to kill people or for fertility. Um, all sorts of things, special feathers, special shells, etc. Um, and uh, and the special power of people. Um, and uh, also the need to acquire these in order to conduct the rituals to protect the community. So the ability to uh, trans um, to impose levies on the community. You know, that, that takes a certain amount of, um, of, uh, mytho of conceptual reorientation as well. It's a certain amount of ideology. I mean, you have to be ready to accept these claims. Um, and the, the ideological claim that you're protecting the community as well, um, all these, I think, are important ideological transformations. There, on the plains, they had a, a kind of a unique one, which is fairly transparent in terms of, of being um, to their own self-interest. But that was the idea that uh, you could transfer the supernatural power um, by having sex with somebody. And so, uh, and so one of the requirements of a lot of the initiates was that um, they, uh, they bring their wives to their initiation, and the wives uh, would go off with the various members of the secret society to have sex, and they would transfer their power to her, and then the, the initiate could get that uh, same supernatural power by having sex with his wife. <coughs> so, it, as I say, sometimes the, the self-interest is pretty, pretty obvious in uh, some of these. And... <laughs> um, uh, and uh, what else? Well, I think that, that illustrates the, the kinds of ideological changes that were being promulgated. And then you talked about the the dark side uh, of some of these, and some of these I can uh, easily imagine, like the maybe acceptance of cannibalism that uh, might have been part of those ideological changes, um, you know, unfair levies, et cetera. What, what were some of the other dark sides that you found uh, with secret societies? Right. Um, before we, I, can I come back to that in just a minute? Because absolutely because your show, I would, I would, uh, you know, like to, um, make sure that I get a chance to just read a little bit out of this book that I put together um, about some of these displays because they really are 
some of the most incredible accounts of, of the ethnographic accounts that I know of. And as I, uh, as I mentioned, um, so the, uh, the topic of secret societies is, is one of the most fascinating ones that I found in archaeology or ethnography. And some of these accounts are just mind-blowing, uh, but they can give you uh, bad dreams and <laughs> nightmares, too, if you're, if you're uh, sensitive to these kinds of things. But um, So these were, uh, this is an account uh, from uh, an overview of the Northwest Coast here and some of the displays they put on to try to convince people that they had these supernatural powers. So the ancestral powers that were passed down from generation to generation um, included like the ability to stand on red hot stones, uh, to handle fire and put coals in your mouth, red hot coals in your mouth, um, to throw fire around, to walk on fire, to walk on water, uh, to make stones float, uh, to make a rattle dance all by itself, uh, to disappear um, for people to, dis well, uh, to gash yourself and push an arrow through your body, to swallow magical sticks until blood flowed, to be scalped while you were dancing, to be speared, uh, to bring a dead salmon back to life, uh, to commit suicide by throwing yourself into the fire or by cutting off your own head and then being brought back to life. All these people were being brought back to life, all this stuff. Um, to split a dancer's skull in two and then revive them, uh, to engage in cannibalism and to eat live dogs. Uh, so those were all the kinds of things that were going on at these displays. And um, on the plains, very similar kinds of things. And, and I think a lot of these elements get passed around uh, all, across the continent, basically. People were very interactive these people involved in ritual societies were constantly on the move, visiting and partic participating in other people's rituals. So a lot of this stuff got passed around. So on the plains, there were miraculous demonstrations and, cure, and uh, cures, including swallowing fire, uh, plunging your arms into boiling water, uh, dancing on red-hot stones, shooting men and reviving them, thrusting long knives down their throats, and then somersaulting, and which broke off the hilt, followed by profuse bleeding, uh, and the replacement of the hilt, and the removal of the knife uh, as a result, and the return to an uninjured state, um, and the skewering of a head from ear to ear, the cutting off of a tongue or an arm or even a head, and the body continuing to dance with blood gushing out, uh, followed by the replacement of the tongue, uh, the replacement of the arm or the head, and the resumption of totally normal appearances. <laughs> and um, so a lot of the Europeans that saw these things were totally dumbfounded. They couldn't figure out how it was done. Oh, uh, there was a, another a series where they could make um, uh, feathers dance by themselves or... They could make plants spring out of the ground instantaneously with fruit on them or that developed fruit, you know, as people watched. Uh, so how, how some of this stuff was done is hard to imagine. 
and certainly rivals anything that's on the magical show circuit today. So um, it's an, it's amazing. <laughs> reading about it is totally amazing. Yeah. And you just got to shake your head and wonder how in the world did they do that? So, um, well, and a little bit, I mean, uh, as much as you, I, you know, on one hand, you can be skeptical of them. On the other hand, you could see how if you're involved in national, international exchange of this kind of magnitude of secret, you don't have uh, how much more exciting than being involved in war or uh, combat or right. It's like it's an interesting and relatively peaceful way than to engage between cultures. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, a safe way, too, because uh, if you were a member of the secret society, you had safe passage uh, anywhere where there was another chapter of the same secret society. So uh, it's, it's very important in that respect. Um, so do we want to talk a little bit about uh, the dark side? We we don't have very long left, but... Oh, oh yes, we do. Okay. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay well, um, I was going to say that, um, uh, you know, these demonstrations were one way of convincing people. And if your goal is to exert power in the community, uh, you don't want too much dissension. You don't want people challenging you. And so uh, as a result, um, you develop a number of different types of tactics in order to uh, get acquiescence. And that's a key word, I think. It doesn't make any difference to them if people believe what you say or what you claim, just as long as they act as though, as, as though they act as though they do and act according to what you want them to do. Um, so just acquiescence is the main thing. And I think uh, from my experience in traditional communities, there's always a group of people that are gullible. You know, they'll believe whatever you tell them. Uh, you say you've, you know, you know that uh, you've been in touch with Sonakwa, the cannibal spirit, they'll believe you. And, uh, and if you can throw in a few demonstrations, yeah, well, they'll, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a, so that's part of the people that you're trying to control or to have power over. There's another group of people I think that are um, that are not as gullible, but they're willing to at least consider the possibilities, or they're at least willing to acquiesce. They'll they'll go along with you if you give them a good reason to. Um, and I think that's the majority of people. Uh, and so they are, they can, they're people that can be convinced by some of these displays that we've just talked about. Um, and, um, and they, they may be still be skeptical, but they're not going to challenge you, especially if you include economic leverage. And, uh, if you're an important political figure that's got some power within the family or within the lineage. You know, if you're the head of the lineage, yeah, you can exert some uh, leverage on them as well. Or if, <clears throat> or if getting married depends on, you know, your member of the secret society and your family giving you the uh, enough wealth to do that, uh, then you, yeah, okay, I'll go along with you. So there are a lot of leverages that can be used just to get acquiescence. Um, and it, it, people don't 
have to totally believe, as I said, it's like Santa Claus. If, um, you know, you're not going to challenge anybody's claim in public that Santa Claus exists, but in private, and everybody knows that, you know, he doesn't, but, it, and you go along with the, with the fiction in public to make everybody happy, right? So I this is the second time we've outed Santa Claus this year on Folk You, so it's no longer a kid-friendly show. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but I want to point out that uh, aside from those people that, okay, you can control more or less, but then there's always a residual number of people, maybe 10% of the population, maybe a little bit more, who are the absolute skeptics and who are, you know, out to challenge authority and... Um, you know, just make trouble if you want um, and do whatever they want. And they can be real troublemakers. If they start spouting off in public that this is all a sham and they start exposing the ways that, uh, you know, the people in that are dancing in the masks are not really spirits. They're just people dressed up in masks. Uh, or if they say that the whistles and the flutes that are being used or the bull roars are not really the voice of spirits, it's just somebody out in the woods twirling around a bull roar or playing a flute, not the spirit, not the voice of spirits, um, that starts undermining the whole edifice that you're trying to create. It can undermine your the, uh, the power you have of getting acquiescence or belief in what you're doing. And you have to deal with those people, and that's what they do. And they do it really severely. Uh, even if you're the, a couple of the documents say that even if you're a chief's son, uh, you, can be, um, you can be killed for challenging uh, or for revealing any of the secrets of how these displays, how the magical tricks are happening or are performed, uh, that the dancers are not really spirits, they're just uh, normal people. Um, sort of like Santa Claus, I mentioned, you know. Uh, everybody says, well, everybody believes that they're really spirits dancing and appearing before you, but everybody knows it's not really the case, but nobody's willing to say that. So, um, so all these societies start uh, instituting threats and, and engage in beatings and... Uh, Dis and uh, destruction of property, destroying houses. Uh, when that happens, if, if somebody displeases the society, the members of the society, if somebody contravenes the, uh, the dictates of the society, uh, a lot of times people get dressed up or become possessed by these spirits and they go around on rampages and just uh, destroy homes, uh, destroy furniture, tear down walls, destroy crops, destroy animals, uh, beat people. Um, and this is a really common feature among lots of secret societies. They, they go on these rampages sometimes. And I'm sure the people that are being targeted are the ones that are the ones not uh, giving enough uh, obedience to the secret societies or and they ha and the number of accounts say they have spies out there to try to determine who it is that's uh, talking bad about the secret societies or revealing secrets um, and so when they go on these rampages which are very typical either on the northwest coast in Africa no matter where in Oceania um, they 
not only engage in destruction and beatings, but uh, if people are really egregious and really offend by revealing secrets, uh, they're killed. And so this is way before uh, we've got um, chiefs that are uh, installed. Uh, so it's a lot of people say that there's no coercion in uh, traditional tribal societies. But it's not true. Once you get secret societies, they've got a, a coercive body uh, of members that go out and punish people uh, or, or kill them uh, for not following secret society dictates. So it's a real, and this cannot be understood by any means as uh, communitarian, community solidarity, or uh, any of these more altruistic motives that people impute to early ritual groups or early religious uh, developments. Um, no, it's purely meant to maintain um, the power of the groups. And then engaging in cannibalism uh, is and human sacrifices. Uh, even on the coast here, uh, there's one account um, that said when the poor people heard that there was going to be a, uh, a major ritual taking place, they all started to cry because they knew that somebody in their community was going to die. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, the, a lot of the uh, less privileged people in the native communities were not enthusiastic uh, supporters of these secret societies, even though they often enjoyed some of the displays and things like that. This, once again, it's been so fascinating, the time just sort of disappeared. If people want to uh, learn more about secret societies, um, where can they get your book? And are there any other resources that you recommend they check out? Um, I don't think there are any other resources. Uh, well, you could you could look at some of the historical works by Drucker. Uh, Philip Drucker uh, is a major work. It's uh, 1941, so it's not easy to, to find dancing societies of the Northwest Coast. Um, and uh, Franz Boas, uh, 